good morning, church family. It's so good that you can join us today. After taking a week for our week of prayer last week, and Pastor Gabe just hitting home run from the Word of God, we'll be back in Pioneers today. You know, it's interesting. I got reached out from somebody in Colorado who watched our Ascent video on their cell phone as they climbed the Colorado Rocky Mountains. So uh, that has gone out, and God is using it in special ways. They said, I took six hours going through it. I kept pausing it and reviewing it and praying. If you haven't had a chance yet, we would encourage you, spend some time with the Lord in prayer. It's why we made that, and we hope to use it. We're glad to see it's being used everywhere, and not just here in Pennsylvania. Hey, as we continue our series today in Pioneers, we're looking at acts of faith. We're trying to grow our faith, and we're not only looking to Scripture, we're also looking to some biographies um, that kind of inspire us as well, knowing they're not perfect people, but people that we can draw inspiration from that have demonstrated great faith. So our, our pioneer today, our whatever, whenever, however person was born April 15th, 1892 to a working class family whose father was a jeweler and a watchmaker who owned a watch shop in Amsterdam, Netherlands, near the Harlem area. She grew up in a home that they would call the Bayet. And, and she, this was a place that with her parents, her three sisters, and her maternal aunts, um, they would come to become to know this, this place would be known for generations to come as the hiding place uh, for when the Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940. She and her family helped many Jews escape from the Nazis by hiding them in a secret room they had in the Bayet during the Holocaust of World War II. She and her family believed her actions were following the will of God and their nonviolent resistance against the Nazi oppressors was her family's way of living out their Christian faith. The Bayet group that she was part of has estimated or they've estimated to have saved over 800 Jewish lives. Her name? Corey Ten Boom. You know, I was drawn to Corey Ten Boom and, and waited for this sermon to bring her biography into place as a pioneer um, because one of my favorite quotes, do you have some quotes that show up at your office, your home office or near you? I, I, I've been to lots of different offices in our church and I'll see some of the quotes that mean a lot to you. It's one of the things I enjoy. So if I'm ever in your office and you see me looking around, I just wanna see the stuff that inspires you so I can steal it and use it myself, okay? No, but but um, Corey has one of those quotes for me, um, one of the most memorable quotes of her. And I wanna share that with you. It's um, on living life with fear, of the future. Do you have anybody ever struggle sometimes going out into the future and seeing some fear? Okay. She has a great quote for it. She says this, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. In this world, we will have trouble. But what worry does is it empties today of all our strength. That's why we're called to not go into the future. God has that. You stay on today, he tells us. Corey has another great, great quote. She had turned into an incredible speaker and encourager of people. And if you ever hear her talk, this sweet grandmother with a powerful strength to her that is incomprehensible, she, she gives out these awesome encouraging quotes. And if you're into quotes, Corey is, oh man, she is inspiring. But she also is the one who said, worry is like a rocking chair. 
It gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere, okay? Um, it's, a, it's a great quote from Corey. She is awesome. She's going on to be with the Lord. But she grew up in the Amsterdam area, okay, in the Harlem district, um, in this bayet, this little watch shop that her father, Casper, owned. Um, when she was little, she got saved at five years old. She said, Jesus did not say you are too young. He just came, and I have walked my Lord and I for 80 years. Have any of you been saved for 80 years? I mean, my word, think about the longevity of that life. Now, Corey took after her father, and she began to make watches too. In fact, in 1922, make sure I get this right, she was the first woman in the Netherlands to be officially a watchmaker. She established youth clubs in the Bayet and trained young girls in sewing and, and different um, creative arts and aspects that she had as a watchmaker. She was quite, quite a young lady. But she can talk about a time, she talks about a time, if you've ever heard her speak, she said, my father, we heard on the radio this yelling from this military leader. He would just scream and scream. And, and our prime minister would try to give us counsel that Holland will be okay, Holland will be okay. But she said, my father, Casper, he said, Holland will not be okay. They're giving hope where there is no hope. And, and you know this screaming voice to be the, another than Adolf Hitler. Her father, after listening on the radio, he said, Holland will fall, but the Lord Jesus Christ will never fall. Holland may fall, countries may come and go, but Jesus Christ will never fall. She held on to that, the, the oppression and, and the stress and, and, the, and the time of this fierce military struggle and, and the leading of Adolf Hitler led to Jews being terribly, terribly, terribly treated. And the oppression grew closer to her home. Their family decided to use the Bayet to hide Jews from being sent to these concentration camps. Her father brought in an architect that looked over the house and found a room that they would use to hide people in, to keep them from being killed. In the back of the bayet, up on the third story was Nolly's and Corey's room. This is Betsy's room, the famous Betsy, if you know the story. But up in this room, they built a wall. They left just a portion of it, and this is a picture of it even today. It's cut out here, it wasn't cut out before, but it's cut out there for tourists to be able to see in the room. It, it was made of brick, because if you knocked on it or banged on it, it wouldn't be hollow sounding, thus knowing it was a secret room. They, they plastered it in an old plaster. And in this room, there was a bookshelf that at the bottom of the bookshelf, they would open this little hatch, this bookshelf, and climb back behind this wall. There was an alarm system throughout the shop. There was one out front in the watch shop. There was one in the back in the kitchen area. And there was one at the bay window. And when the alarm sounded, Corey tells a story that we were told we needed to be able to get them into the room in under 60 seconds. See, there was a whole process to it. If a bed was being laid on, they had to get off the bed and flip it over for the Gestapo would feel the bottom, of, feel the bed, and if they felt heat on the bed, then they would know that there was someone in there. If they had any food that they were eating, it had to go into the secret room. It had to be a part of that so it wouldn't be left because then the Gestapo would know that they were doing this. She always lived, she said she always lived with a sense of pressure and a sense of stress that one day, 
they would come and they would find them. And that day actually came when the family was betrayed by someone imposter, being an imposter to sell them out to the Gestapo. And they were sent to prison where her father, Casper, would die and where her and Betsy were sent off to a horrifying concentration camp. Now, young people, part of the reason I wanted to do biographies during the Pioneer Series is not only to learn from them, but to be educated by them. For many of us don't know these stories, but I'm gonna tell you, the Holocaust and what happened in those concentration camps, the more you read about it, you wanna kind of throw up, okay? How people were treated. And, and, and it's, it's disturbing on a hundred levels, but to think that this was only 1940. This wasn't like the 1500s. For many of you who were alive during this time period and remember some of this that was going on in our world. Betsy and Corey were sent to Ravensbrück. This is a woman's concentration camp. She said, Corey said, I had anger in my heart. If you hear her speak, even into her advanced years, she said, I looked up to the stars and I said, God, you named all the stars, but you have forgotten Betsy and I. Betsy stopped her. Betsy was her encourager. Betsy kept Corey going so many times and she stopped her and she said, no, no, Corey. God has not forgotten us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us and he keeps his promises. We cannot trust our feelings. They come and they go. But God's promises are steady. The things they did to these women, besides taking their names away and giving them numbers, 66730 was Corey Ten Boom, 66729 was Betsy's were terrible. They were put in Barracks 28, the two of them. Now, Barracks 28 was infested with lice and infested with fleas. And so all the women basically cattled into Barracks 28 were infested with lice and fleas. But Corey celebrated that for they were able to do Bible studies in Barracks 28 with the women because the soldiers did not want to come in to the barracks. You say, how did she do Bible studies? How did she have a Bible? Corey tells the story that she hid a Bible in her dress while she was entering the barracks. She said, I prayed to God because they search you and if you were found anything, they not only got rid of it, but they often beat them immediately. She said, I prayed to God. She said, God, I know your angels are transparent. Would you make them not transparent so they could hide me so I could get this Bible in? She said, I know it's unorthodox, but God liked the prayer. She said, in line, they searched the woman in front of her and the woman behind her, up and down, never searched her. She said, I got closer to the barracks to the second search line. They searched the woman in front and the woman in back. They never saw me. They never searched me. And I took a Bible in and I shared the love of Jesus Christ amidst the lice and the fleas. This woman was unbelievable. Released at age 53, when many of the barracks were shot and she heard them all killed, she was released, but she went on to tell a story that Betsy said, you tell the world, Corey, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You have to understand something. Betsy was beaten continually at Ravensbrook because Betsy was ill and not well. 
And if she couldn't do the work they asked her to do, they'd hit her on the back of the head, they'd kick her legs, they'd push her in the back. And Corey said she would watch this. She'd watch her sister beaten for not being able to do the work and then turn to her and say, you tell the world God is here. Betsy was unbelievable. She went on to be with the Lord. At the age of 53 being released, she still goes back to that spot. She is now, Corey is now going on to be with the Lord as well. And you can see the hole that they climbed in underneath that, underneath that bookshelf in the area they stayed. Her father called it the secret room based on Psalm 91, one through two. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91 is still my go-to text. If I have somebody tell me they feel under attack or they feel discouraged or they feel like the world's out to get them, I say, hey, read Psalm 91. Let me encourage you, if you're feeling that way today, Psalm 91 is a home run for that. And that was an anchor verse for that family as they went through these horrific days of the Holocaust. Corey's known for her quotes. Let me read you one that is so dear. In living life with a target on your back. In order to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. I want to call today's message targeted. Targeted. Any remember the movie Annie? The Hard Knock Life. Remember that song? It's the hard knock life. Well, they redid this movie, and in, in the scene, one of the girls goes, wait, what's the hard knock life? This is a room full of orphans. Oh, it, it means our life stinks. And she goes, oh, okay, well then, yeah, it's the hard, and she just sang. There are some folks, can we just say this? They live a harder life than others. We all see it. Oh, rain falls on the righteous and the unjust. But there are some folks that just live harder lives. I was looking at this life of Corey Ten Boom, and I'm literally thinking the more I read, this woman was a complete savage for the Lord. I mean, I know I'm reading about a grandmother who is 10 times tougher than I am. I mean, the, the strength of this woman, and she had her misgivings and her failings, and Betsy was always there to pick her up. But the ministry, she went on to encourage thousands of people with her life came from this school of hard knocks at Ravensbrook, at Barracks 28. And I think, boy, in today's society, we get worked up over a pandemic, let alone World War II, and mass shootings outside your door, and facial beatings. It's inspiring to know that even a hard knock life can be used mightily for God. And so I dedicate this message today to anybody who's listening, who also sometimes feels like God might have missed them. For there are kids that are born into homes that are beaten and kicked and punched. There are women who are terrified if too much alcohol's been consumed because he's on his way home. 
There are young people, especially during the pandemic and working at revivals. You can't believe the tsunami of pain that is coming from what has occurred within homes. And I dedicate this sermon to anybody out there who feels like, hey God, remember me. I wanna show you that you're in good company as difficult as it might be because not only was Saul called to that life, your Lord and Savior was. In fact, it was said of Jesus, he would be a man acquainted with sorrow. But I would argue the life of Jesus, the life of Saul, you know as Paul, would become the two of the most significant lives that have ever walked the face of the earth. And maybe God's using your hard knocks to leverage you to be a pioneer for him. And so today, I wanna to encourage who's ever listening. If you're not called to the hard knocks right now, it may come. But I hope by the end of this sermon, you will be fully inspired to go out there and encourage someone you know just has it really rough. Understand, we are often a product of our poor decision-making as well. But sometimes, life comes at us and it feels like we're targeted. And I think some encouragement from Scripture is well overdue. Heavenly Father, use our text today as we jump into Acts, as we look at this life of Saul that you completely changed. May it remind us that there is no life that is thrown away with you. You care desperately. And let it inspire us to live differently, knowing that at times you use these hard knocks that this world and the evil that's in it and the defeat that's in it because of sin, because of our enemy, that you can take and use for good. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, remember, when Ananias said, you mean Saul's getting saved, Jesus said, or God said, hey, don't worry, I'm gonna tell him. He's gonna see how much he will suffer because of my name. Well, if you recall, two weeks ago when we were in this story, we saw Saul headed up to Damascus where Jews were fleeing from the persecution that he was inflicting. They were running up into Damascus. They were hiding there for there was freedom in Damascus that Jerusalem didn't have. And Saul charged after them. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And remember, he had letters in his hands from Caiaphas that he could imprison any Jewish people who were following this, the way, the truth, and the life. And he's headed after them and he's ready to get them and not only get them, but even kill them. For we know he is one who possibly orchestrated the stoning of Stephen. He's charging up towards Damascus. And Jesus interrupts. Jesus interrupts. It's kind of like um, a huge butt. Am I allowed to talk about big butts in church? Now I'm talking about the conjunction, where your mind's at. It's like this was happening, this was happening, this was happening, but God stepped in. He's charging up towards Damascus and Jesus comes out of nowhere and surprises him on the road and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. Boom, this, this persecutor is laying on the ground. He can't see, he's blinded for three days. He's completely changed. He's interrupted, he's humbled, but he would be empowered to change the world.
We see from the testimony of Saul that Jesus interfered and called out his chosen instrument. He went from this, he went from a murderer and a persecutor to the church to God's chosen instrument. Saul was a persecutor, but Jesus can call anyone. Saul was a murderer, but Jesus can humble anyone. Saul was a hater of Christians, but Jesus can forgive anyone. Saul wanted people dead, but Jesus can use anyone. Saul, but Jesus can change anyone. And for this happened, this total 180 happened in Saul's life. And it says that he stayed up in Damascus. You saw him hunt up there. He stayed up in Damascus with the disciples for a while. We're not exactly sure how long, but there was a time period. But what did he do? He immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Now, a little, 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 little note here. For those of you who like the little, little lower stuff. Only reference of son of God in the book of Acts. Luke incorporates this because it seems that Saul has maybe even penned this in Acts as his title for him. This is the guy who is killing people for worshiping Jesus, and now he's in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, going, he is the son of God. What a change. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem with those who called upon his name? They had questions. They had a second question. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Now hold up a minute. This guy going, he is the son of God. Hold up. Isn't this the guy who wants us dead? Isn't this the guy who's got letters in his hands wanting to throw us in prison? Saul is completely changed. By God and in God's eyes, but not in the people's. He's still targeted. He's targeted in this sense. He's misread. They, they, they see something else and he's judged privately. Hey, isn't this the guy who did that? And, and he's labeled publicly. I don't know about this guy. You know about his past? Have you ever seen somebody where their past hasn't been forgiven by people? They've changed, but people continue to bring up the past. Before you get judgmental, have you ever done that to yourself? You've changed, but you completely continue to beat up yourself for your past. You've asked for forgiveness, and Jesus has offered it to you, but you keep going back into the past. People do that. You see, I've really changed, but everybody's acting like I'm a phony, I'm a fraud, and they're judging him privately, they're labeling him publicly. Have you ever seen a teenager labeled? Have you ever seen parents labeled? Have you ever been labeled? You know how painful that can be at times. And you want to make changes, but the people around you aren't even accepting it. And, and you just feel totally misread. Do you don't think Paul, or Saul, excuse me, still knows his past? In, in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. I mean, that stayed with him. He didn't need reminders of what he was. Oh, but for the people, they kept digging up the past and they were misreading that God had changed a life. Is there anybody that you keep bringing up someone's past? Corey Ten Boone's got some encouraging quotes for those who struggle with hating their past. She says this, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and then he puts up a sign that reads, no fishing. 
I told you, she is an encourager of encouragers. That's on her being labeled by your past. God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and he puts up a sign that reads, no fishing. Have you ever misread somebody? I remember playing basketball on the weekend at school. Now this was a time period where I was on a college basketball team and so they had open gyms on weekends and so everybody was allowed to play that was in the school. So, you know, this is, you know, college basketball players, you're like, kind of like we have to play with the commoners. That's how it kind of felt. So we're playing and there's this one kid, he's just going hard at me. He's going really hard at me. I'm like, what's this guy's problem? I don't wanna go hard. I have a game on Tuesday. This guy wants to win this game or die. But I was a competitive person, still am. And I started playing back at him. I'm going back and forth. And there's a little chirping going on. It's all in Jesus' name. <laughs> all the basketball players feel me right now. And we're going back and forth, back and forth. He starts bumping me. I go, I'm going to have to get physical with this guy. Now, you can play basketball or you can actually fight and dribble, okay? And that's what was starting to happen. And this guy's all physical. And I'm, I'm dropping my shoulder. I'm going in for this ball. I'm going to let him know. And I dribbled in, bang, and I hit him. And his leg flew off. That was my reaction. He's on the ground. Out from his sweatpants came a leg and was laying on the basketball court. It was a prosthetic leg. And I watched him reach for that leg and pull it back under his sweat. And I looked at his face and I saw the anger and it wasn't directed at me. His anger was that it came off. The whole gym saw it and nobody would play competitively against him again because they would look at him as disabled and go soft on him. And he wanted to play hard and he wanted to be treated like one of the guys. You ever misread something? Would you be willing to look at somebody that maybe you've labeled and offer them a fresh start? It's like Saul's wanting to get going, but people are reading him a certain way. What's gonna happen? There's a but. Look what Luke does. But, but, but Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's like God can't be stopped. Jesus won't be stopped. You want to label my servant? Go ahead. I'm going to use him. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Now they're out to kill him, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. I mean, he goes from being misread to now being mistreated. They're attacking him secretly. They're plotting and planning. Have you ever been slandered and you knew you were being slandered? They're threatening him physically. I pray it's not true in a room, but in a room this size, I guarantee you there's people in here that have been threatened physically. Do you see, is there, is there a text in scripture for people like us who do live the hard-knocked life? Yeah, there is. You have God's chosen servant, yet he's being misread and judged for his past, and he's being mistreated and threatened and attacked. There's a young man who said, Pastor Chris, would you go with me? I've got things I really need to ask forgiveness for or forgive people for, excuse me. 
And um, I need somebody to go along with me with the counselor. I said, I'll go with you, bud. Sure, you got it. When are we going? He told me. And we went. We got there. And I'm um, on the table. The counselor had a, Christian counselor had a, had a blank piece of paper with a pencil. Now, this young man had grown up in different foster homes. He had been taxied around the whole country, all sorts of stuff that I didn't even fully know. But the counselor said, I want you to write down on this piece of paper all the people you need to forgive. Because, bud, your chains are too heavy and these people are having too much an effect on you and they're all out living their lives and you are internally destroyed. He began to write. I watched this boy just write names. I'm like, no way does he have that name. Many names. Names from his past, names that went through. The counselor had left the room, came back in, looked at the paper. You ready to forgive these people? Okay. He took another sheet of paper. He goes, here. All right, now write who you need to forgive. I was like, what? He just wrote. Write who you didn't even want to put on this list. He's put his head down and went on to write three to four more names. This boy had been locked in his room on Christmas mornings while the other children opened their presents that he could hear them. This boy had been physically, sexually, in every way abused. This kid had so many emotional wounds, you could feel his body trembling as he wrote those things. But that new counselor knew, and I knew as well, until forgiveness was found, those people were gonna keep hooks in him his whole life, and he would never have freedom. How do you forgive people that are that evil? Let's ask Corey Ten Boom. She says this, God will give us the love to be able to forgive our enemies. Corey was out speaking long after the Holocaust had ended, and she was told that somebody in the crowd wanted to speak to her that night. Up came an, a soldier that had been at Ravensbrook and wanted to ask for her personal forgiveness. For he had come to Christ and he wanted to ask for Corey's forgiveness for what had happened. She said, I felt such anger in my heart. But God gave me the ability to forgive him. God will give us the love to be able to forgive. You might be misread out there, and you might be mistreated out there. And the whole world might feel like it's against you. Ready? But. But his disciples took him in by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He came in the persecutor. He's leaving the persecuted. There always is a but when it comes to Jesus. There always is, but Jesus did something. Everybody else could look at this situation and say it's over, but Jesus keeps sending people to love Saul, the chosen instrument. And when he had come to Jerusalem, they took him back down into Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. Oh, finally, he's back with the disciples, right? Finally, whoo, Saul, you need some, you need some brotherly love, right? And he gets the disciples and guess what? They were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now he's basically called a liar misread, mistreated, misjudged. And he's avoided intentionally. He's excluded unfairly. 
Can anybody relate? You're the ones left out. You're the one who doesn't get invited. You're the one that sits by themselves at the lunch table. You're the one after work. They all go out and they don't ask you. You say, is there a passage in scripture for people like me? Saul was even targeted by the disciples who have him judged and don't want him around. Have you ever misjudged someone based on your own preconceived notions? There's a story that happened on the campus of Harvard University, Harvard. 1884, a, a young man had died to a couple and they wanted his name to go on. And so they came to Harvard and they met with President Elliot at the time and they, and they said, we would like to set up a memorial for, in our son's name. And he said, hey, that's great. Um, he looked over the couple, pious couple, didn't look like much, maybe just a, a kind of a, n nothing to say they're of any worth. And he said, what are you thinking? And they go, we would like to maybe, maybe uh, do a memorial like a building to his name and and the president of Harvard laughed. He said, no, no, how about like a scholarship? How about we go a small scholarship? Well, that seemed to really hurt the mother's feelings. And so they ended up leaving the office and he kind of dismissed them as it's a shame when these people think that they can just come in here and get buildings named after their children. And so they went on and they gave the money to another junior college. Um, their son's name was Leland Stanford and Stanford University was built. You know, sometimes we misread people, right? You know, sometimes that punky teenager might just be punky because he feels like everyone hates him. Sometimes that quiet girl has so much to offer, but she's told to shut up every time she goes to talk. And, and is there a passage in scripture for, for the hard knock life? Those who are misread, mistreated, and misjudged, just kind of called to a life of rejection. What do you do with this? Have you ever felt rejected? You know how terrible it feels. Some of you might know the name Campbell Morgan, the great preacher. In 1888, he was one of 150 men who were applying to go into the Wesleyan ministry. Very hard to get in. And one of the goals, you had to speak in front of a large group of professors and teachers in a huge cathedral. And Campbell says he kind of choked. He was so nervous and scared, he didn't do a very good job. His father was waiting, so he wired him on a telegraph. And his father got rejected. <laughs> I'm gonna give you a little secret. Young people, as you get older, when your kids are rejected, you feel rejected, okay? It's just, that's why parents get all cranked up sometimes. Makes me love Jesus even more. Because when I get rejected, I know my Savior sees that. He never rejects me. The father, back to his son, and it said this, Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Isn't that great?
Do you have somebody in your life that you can go to and they go, hey, 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 hey. I got your back. And that's why I think this is the biggest but in the text. You got a guy who's misread, mistreated, misjudged, but Barnabas took him and brought him in to the disciples. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. That's not his original name. His original name was Joseph. He was called Barnabas, okay? Barnabas means son of encouragement. Here's what people felt of this Joseph. They said, listen, if, if encouragement walked the face of the earth, this guy named encouragement, and he embodied everything about encouragement, if that guy had a son, you'd be him. And so he was called son of encouragement. I mean, what was it like to be around Barnabas? You may know a Barnabas in your life. I mean, they come in the room, it's almost like, yes, they're here. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, guys, listen, on the road, Saul, he had seen the Lord, spoke to him, and how in Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And you say, well, that's great for sticking up for him. But, but Barnabas did even more than that. He brought up three qualifications of an apostle. He has seen the Lord. All the other apostles had seen Jesus. Saul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has spoken to the Lord. All, you ha, if in order to be apostle, you had to have actually spoken to Jesus. Well, Jesus had died and rose again. So Jesus come and spoke to Saul. And he has preached the Lord. That was one of the requirements of apostle, that you preach the Lord. He's almost saying this guy is qualified to be an apostle. And, and oh man, that just kind of fired up. It just kind of fired up Saul. And so he went out among them. At Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem and he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and, and disputed against the Hellenists. Now he's doing exactly what Stephen was doing. And, but they still were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him probably in a ship off to Tarsus, which is where he's from. So Saul's just been sent home. And Luke, in his famous style, gives a progress report of the church. Despite all these things, despite all these discouraging things, despite all these attacks, despite the stoning of Stephen, despite all these things, he says this, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. He says this, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the spirit, it multiplied. Don't miss this church. You've been studying with us in the book of Acts. Luke wants you to see something. Look at all the persecution on the church. Look at all the stress the church is going through. Look at all the easy, easy distractions and getting involved. Look at all their leaders being attacked. But Acts 6 through 9, it's like Luke saying, Acts 2.41, you see all this persecution? Yeah, 3,000 new believers were added. Acts 2.47, more were coming day by day. Acts 5.14, multitudes of new believers. Acts 6 through 7, uh, the stoning of Stephen, no, no, the disciples increased greatly. Acts 9.31, it was being built up and multiplied. The gates of hell cannot stand against the church, amen? That's what Luke wants to show you. Well, it just doesn't look good right now. Luke's going, look at the past. Well, you know, it's just a lot of pressure going, look at the past. The greatest predictor of future events is past behavior. Luke has given this to us to say, look, 
oh, the methods might change and you might have to adapt. But the church is going to prevail. In fact, the more you put her under pressure, the larger she often gets. That's encouraging. I think there's a lot of people out there today who need encouragement. And so for application today, I want to go back to something that really spoke to my heart. Because I don't believe that these servants often get talked about enough. They're not necessarily the limelight leaders with the predominant gifts. I'm talking about the Barnabases of the world. The people who stand in the gap sometimes for those prominent gifted people. The people who sometimes say, I don't know if I've got any gifts. But if you have the gift of encouragement and you're an encouraging person, and anybody can do that, you're one of the most wonderful people on earth. And you're what one of my dear friends likes to call, ah, that guy's a salt of the earth type of guy. But Barnabas. There are those out there who are misread, mistreated, and misjudged. They live that hard-knocked life. Corey Ten Boom would say to you, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. No self-help message is gonna get you out of this. You can do it. It's not gonna work. Just believe in yourself. I believe. It's not gonna work. You need truth. You need Christ. If you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. No matter where you're at today, no matter what's going on in your past, maybe Jesus wants to intersect with you and say, I can change it. I can use it. I could take this life and make it valuable. And he may send to you, even this week, a Barnabas. Now, there's some principles if you want to be a Barnabas out there. You can't just go, I am going to be a Barnabas. You got to know some things because your feelings are going to change that. One day, you'll be super encouraging. Monday, by Tuesday, you'll be like, oh, this stinking snow. I hate. Okay. <laughs> you need truth. I call them the Barnabas principles. Let's pack the truth before I give you the characteristic of what a Barnabas leader looks like. Let's pack the truth in. Have you ever heard the proverb, Proverbs eleven twenty five? Have you heard this wisdom? I want you all to get wisdom. Here it is. Whoever brings a blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Are you out there, and you are misread, mistreated, and misjudged? I got good news for you. Not Chris Heller says, but straight wisdom from God says, go water people. Now, young people, that does not mean take a water gun to school. Pastor Chris did not say that. Water people, go encourage them. See, the devil wants you to sit home and have a pity party. The Holy Spirit wants to say, suck it up, buttercup. Let's go water some people. And you get out and you start encouraging other people. You don't even have to get out anymore. In our world, I'm texting if you're listening. You don't even have to get out anymore to encourage people. Water people. Because when you water people, you yourself will be watered. You know, so it's often misread, misjudged, and mistreated. We often think of person who's living a hard knock life, but sometimes there are people who succeed and get out in front of their peers and they get attacked for succeeding. And they're misjudged. 
and they're mistreated for succeeding, I would give you the same encouragement. If you find yourself to be a prominent person that people are a little annoyed how good you are doing at life, go water people. You might have a platform to encourage people that will in turn bring encouragement back to you. I've spoken this message to even young people and said, hey, do you wanna be popular? And they all look up. I didn't know the preacher was gonna talk about something I cared about. I said, just on a, on a flat reality, be an encouraging person. Because here's this thing. Have you ever noticed, I hope I can say this in church, there are people who are extremely attractive, yet terribly ugly. And there are some people that the world would say are unattractive people, but they're beautiful. And I promise you that beauty is encouragement. It's kindness. Go water somebody. But in order to water, you gotta have some theology behind that. You gotta have some truth. Here are the four Barnabas principles. One, encouragement stems from a need. You have to understand everybody in this room needs to be encouraged, every single person. There's nobody in here to say, I'm good. Everybody needs to be encouraged. And that's why scripture says, but encourage one another daily while it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, sin lies to us when we're not encouraged. It says things like, they probably didn't call me because they hate me now. Well, I hate them. I never liked them anyway. And you've got this fight going on that never even existed. And the devil's going, <laughs> I love their head. Watch out. Encourage people. Even while it's called today, I think scripture new texting would come because even at 10 at night, <laughs> Encouragement, while well, it's today. The second principle is encouragement. It starts in the mind. Scripture says, let us consider how we may spur one another on, how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I always like to think of teaching your kid how to ride their bike. Come on, man, you can do it. Come on, come on, you can do it. You think of ways, no, hold the thing, hold the handlebar straight. No, no, you gotta keep going. Hey, don't look around. Okay, get back up, it's no big deal. That didn't hurt, that didn't hurt. Remember lying to your kids when they're little? That didn't hurt, come on. Okay, it didn't hurt, no. Okay, I'm bleeding. You know, nah. Spur people on. You have to think about ways. How could I encourage that staff member? How could I encourage my dad? How could I encourage that secretary? How could I encourage my mailman? I gotta think of ways. Third, encouragement speaks from the mouth. Let no corrupt communication come out, but what is good for building up as it fits the occasion. You know you can even exhort people, which means to say that shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. I'd like you to do something else. You can actually do that without being mean. It's true. It's unbelievable. I've failed at that. You probably have too. But hey, no fishing. Except God's forgiveness. Encouragement speaks from the mouth. And then fourth, the Barnabas principles are this. It strengthens the soul. You gotta know that when you encourage someone, you're strengthening them. You're giving them courage. For whatever was written in the former days, when we read about Saul and Barnabas, it was written for instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we have hope. And that's why we need verses. Do you know how powerful it is to text somebody a verse? Because endurance comes through encouragement of the scriptures so that we might have hope. Those are the Barnabas principles. And so let me leave you with inspiration. I promised you characteristics of a Barnabas. I put together this list and I thought of all the Barnabases out there. 
I shared them with a couple people. I said, I kind of look at you as a Barnabas. They said, oh, that's really, it was encouraging. God's kind of called me to kind of a Paul life. And so way back in the 1900s, I married a Barnabas. And I promise you, I would not be on this stage if God didn't give me that Barnabas. And that Barnabas sometimes says, well, I don't really have any gifts really per se. Uh, Some of you are married to a Barnabas. Some of you switch roles. You become Paul or Barnabas, you switch. But this goes out to all the Barnabases and let it encourage us as a church to be like this. Here are the characteristics. One, if you got a Barnabas in your life, they're inspiring. When you feel defeated, they go, well, I believe in you. You just have to say that. No, no, I believe in you. They're inspiring. A Barnabas is loyal. Loyal. Listen, listen, I'm not going anywhere. But they left me, that they did this to me, that I'm not going anywhere. It's true. Barnabases are loyal. A Barnabas is present. Hey, are you coming? And they say things like, yeah, you know I'll be there. Oh, it's gonna be so good to see you there. Barnabas are servants. When there's a need, they say things like, sure, I'm on my way over. I'm on my way over. See, I read this list and get convicted. Because I got like desires, goals, agendas. Barnabas is to go, you're my goal. You're my agenda. So awesome. They're empathetic. Hey, I was uh, just checking in. Just wanted to check in. How are you doing? They're celebrators. Wow, that is so great. You love to call a Barnabas. Because they're so happy. They want to celebrate with you. There's some that you tell them good news and like, well, I don't know why you got that. Barnabases are like, let's go. That's great. You didn't really deserve that. Let's go. You want to call Barnabas. You want to call him. There's a young mom who, who was having a baby, her first baby. She called her mom, who can tend to sometimes be a little jaded. She goes, well, don't get too excited. These things don't always work out. reassuring. It's going to be fine. I think my Barnabas told me that about a hundred times this year. I have 10 reasons to show you it won't be. It's going to be fine. You have somebody like that in your life? They're giving. Here, I brought you something. My Barnabas, who's that meal for? Can I eat it? No, it's not for you. That's my Barnabas. They're supportive. You did an awesome job. He did an awesome job. And Barnabases are comforting. Don't get discouraged. Last week during week of prayer, I walked into the prayer room and there was a Barnabas in there, okay? He looked at me. He's an older man in our church. He's known me for years. He pointed his finger at my face, tears in his eyes. He goes, don't get discouraged. I was looking at him. He said again, don't get discouraged. In other words, there's a ton of reason to get discouraged complaining, fighting, arguing, disappointment. Why is it being done that way? There's tons 
of reasons. And he said, don't get discouraged. And I drove home like this. What's gonna happen this week? <laughs> and there were some difficult things that came up. And you know what was in my head? Don't get discouraged from that Barnabas. I wanna encourage you. I'm gonna leave you with an assignment. I want you to ask the Lord to one, show you where you need to grow. Who do you need to inspire that you know is living a hard knock life? Who do you need to let them know you're loyal to them no matter what? Who do you need to just be showing up for? Who do you wanna serve? Who could you just serve? Who could you be empathetic for instead of just pointing out all their flaws? Could you just love them for who they are? Who could you celebrate with? Who could you reassure? Who could you just surprise with a gift? Who could you come alongside and support? And who could you go out of your way to comfort and ask the Lord, bring me somebody to mind. I'm going after him today. I'm going after him this week. Heavenly Father, fill our church with Barnabases. Fill our church with Pauls. But Lord, may we always remember the power of an encouraging message. For sometimes, unbeknownst to us, there are people fighting a battle that we can't even imagine. We just see them at church, but they feel misread. We say hi to them at work, but they feel mistreated. We pass them on the roads, they feel misjudged. And God, we're called to be salt in this earth, to be different, not like everyone else. And the greatest salt we can have is to encourage people. Everyone needs it. And when we water, this amazing thing happens in our life. We get watered back. May we hold on to that wisdom. May we hold on to that truth. May we choose to desire to be more like Barnabas. And Lord, thank you for Barnabas standing up for Saul so that he could go on to preach a message to the world of your love. Thank you for this day. May we leave encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.